0: Turn, if you would, to the 12th chapter of the book of Matthew. We are going to finish the 12th chapter, because we're just going to race through it to get to the 13th chapter. I promise. If you remember, chapter 12 began with a discussion between Jesus and the Pharisees regarding the Sabbath day. First off, Jesus' disciples were walking through the grain fields, picking the grain, kind of rolling in their hands, munching on it. (gasps) That's harvesting on the Sabbath. That's against the law. The Pharisees jumped all over them. You shouldn't be doing that. Then the Pharisees brought a guy to Jesus and said, is it legal to heal somebody on the Sabbath day? Now this is a bizarre question because none of them had any power at all to heal anybody. So they asked Jesus, and Jesus says, yes, it's always right to do good, regardless of what day it is. And so he healed the gentleman. And after that, it says the Pharisees and the scribes tried to figure out how they were going to destroy Jesus. There was a break that occurred, and they said, enough is enough. We can't outteach him, we just have to destroy him. And then Jesus had a series of comments regarding the Pharisees that weren't particularly polite. And last week's lesson, they came back to Jesus and they said, give us a sign. And he said, I'm not going to do it. I am not going to give you a sign. Well, I'm going to give you one more sign. And it is the sign of Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the well for three days. The Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days. And then he will be resurrected. Now, we look at that and we go, if I were on that side of the crucifixion and the resurrection, I'm not sure I would understand what that meant. But they certainly didn't understand it. So he is going to finish off his discussion with the Pharisees. And we're going to go through this pretty quick to finish off chapter 12. Picking up in verse 43. Remember, he's talking about the Pharisees. He's talking about the wickedness, if you will, of the Pharisees. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. So, Jesus casts a spirit out of somebody. Or a spirit just decides to leave somebody. There's a demon-possessed person... The Spirit leaves for whatever reason, and the Spirit goes wandering around. It says waterless places. Waterless places is a picture of the dryness of a spiritual life apart from God. You go back to the Psalms, and you have all these pictures of those resting and being given water to drink. It's a spiritual picture of God giving us the water of life. We talked about that several weeks ago. Then it says, the spirit, I will return to my house from which I came. I'll go back from whence I came. I left this person. I'll go back there. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Remember, we're talking about a picture here, a metaphor. The person's life, well, he kind of cleaned it up. You know, I got my external life in order after the spirit left. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. (gasps) And here it comes. So it will be with this evil generation. What is he telling them? He's telling them, you can get rid of the evil in your life, and if you don't replace it with the Holy Spirit, all you're going to do is clean up the external, and the Spirit's going to return, and he's going to bring his buddies, and life is going to be worse than when it was when you started. We think, if I just straighten up the outside, remember, he's talking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees had mastered the art of looking good on the outside. I mean, everybody thought they were the most spiritual people in the country. And he says, no, all you've done is cleaned up the house so that more evil spirits can come take their place. And he makes a promise. This generation is going to be like this. Hmm. Keep going. There's all kinds of questions there. I'm not going to answer them. While he was still speaking, he's just finished this long discussion with the Pharisees. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Now that sounds like a pretty cruel thing to say, okay? I'm sitting here talking to all these people. I'm talking to you and I get a message. My mom is outside and really needs to see me. And I turn to y'all and say, eh, no big deal. It's just my mother. Who is my mother? Sounds pretty cruel, right? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. First question. Is this a cruel statement on his part regarding his mother and his brothers? Now, I might add that there's really no indication at this point that his brothers believed in who he was, okay? There is discussion in the book of John that they didn't. They thought he was crazy. So the brothers had obviously brought the mother. Now, Mary, she knows, okay? I'm just going to say she knows, She's had angels come to her. She may not understand. It says she pondered all this stuff in her heart, but she knows. So surely Jesus would have taken time to see his mother, but he's going to make a point here, and it has nothing to do with his love for his mother. What it has to do with is elevating the love of believers, the family of believers with each other, to the same level as that with your biological kinfolk. That's what he's doing. He's saying, who is my mother? These are. It's an interesting discussion, because you have to understand, I have really good relationships with the members of my family. Okay, I talk to my mother regularly. I talk with my kids all the time. I can't get them to stop talking. (laughs) We have a good relationship. Things are good. But when we get to heaven, we're told there's not going to be any marriage. There's not going to be giving in marriage. Every relationship that we have with everyone in heaven is going to be at that same level of enjoyment and intensity that Jesus had with his mother, that I have with my family. It's not a negative. It's a positive of raising up the relationships that we should have with fellow believers because those relationships are going to last forever for eternity. Remember the discussion we had with John the Baptist, and it's just an interesting parallel to me. Jesus said, of those born of women, no one is greater than John the Baptist. Woo, he's pretty cool stuff. But then he said, but the least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. And it's going, that's a strange sentence. Why would he say that? Is he saying that John wasn't in the kingdom? No, he wasn't saying that at all. What he's saying is kingdom relationships are going to last forever, and anybody that gets through that door is going to be greater than John the Baptist right here on this earth. We have, well, I have, very little understanding or comprehension of the relationships that we will have with God in heaven and the relationships we'll have with each other in heaven. So, he says to make a point to the crowd, not to denigrate his mother and brothers, and we might add, these are half-brothers, they share a mother, Jesus had a different father. If you're a good Catholic, you will say these are cousins because Mary had no children because Mary never had sex, okay? That's what they believe. So the relationships that we are to have with our fellow believers should exceed that that we have with our biological family. Now, I'm sure some of you have bad relationships with your biological family, and that's not a problem, but we'll pray for the best, right? That ends chapter 12. That ends the lesson from two weeks ago. What can I say? The same day, chapter 13, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered around him. That's not that abnormal, right? We've been seeing great crowds come to hear Jesus. So that he, and the great crowds gathered around him so that he got into a boat and sat down and the whole crowd stood on the beach and he told them many things in parables, saying, and then he tells them a story. A guy goes into his field to throw out the grain, the seed to plant in the ground. And some of it falls on this type of soil, and some falls on this type of soil, and some falls on this, and the good stuff falls over here, and it produces great fruit. We're going to talk about all that, but just not right now. Next verse, verse 10. We're going to come back to that. Verse 10. Then the disciples came came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Let's look at Jesus' teaching. Let's just go back to the, well, he started almost copying John the Baptist. John the Baptist came preaching, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. And Jesus began by preaching, repent, for the kingdom is, is at hand. We then got to the Sermon on the Mount, Three chapters, it only took us 25 lessons to make it through them, where he spoke very clearly about what the lifestyle of the kingdom looked like. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, let your light shine before people, don't hide it under the bushel, you are the salt and light of the earth, you've heard it said, don't do this, but I tell you to do that etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. When you do your acts of righteousness, don't do them in order to be seen. Rather, go and do them in secret. All this stuff was very clear. Here's what you have to do. I might add, I believe it's very clear. The complexity comes in, we don't know how to do it, okay? But that's a whole different subject. So he was teaching very clearly to them. Then he started doing miraculous deeds. In fact, he was doing miraculous deeds before that. He's healing people, raising them from the dead. All really cool stuff. Why is he doing all of this? He's calling the nation of Israel to repentance. And what did the nation of Israel do? The spiritual leadership of the nation of Israel said he's demon-possessed. All of this stuff that he's doing, he's doing by the power of Beelzebub. He is doing it because he's demon-possessed. And it's all rejected. What is he going to do? Chapter 13 is actually a transition point in the book of Matthew. Jesus has been preaching to the nation of Israel... Repent, come. Now, there's huge speculation. What would have happened if they had repented? What would have happened if they had recognized Jesus as the Messiah? If the spiritual religious leadership said, he's finally here, come on in, we're going to make you king. What would have happened? And I always answer with the statement of Aslam in the the, the Chronicles of Narnia, it is not for us to know what might have been. We don't know. What we do know is they rejected him. Jesus is going to prepare his disciples for a period of time when he's not here. And what he's going to do is he's going to start teaching them about the kingdom. I'm going to teach you what life is going to be like. Life is going to be like a farmer spreading his seed. The life is going to be like weeds and good grain growing together. What does that mean? I'm going to tell you. I'm going to explain to you. And I'm going to do it using parables. What is a parable? My first idea of a parable is it's a sermon illustration, right? I make a point and I give a sermon illustration to illustrate that point. Except for what we're going to read in just a moment. He's going to talk to them in parables so they don't understand. Wait a minute. It's so to help them understand, right? No. It's so that one set of the population will understand and one set of the population will never understand. The Greek word that we get parable from is actually made up of two words that together mean thrown together. It's like I've got a spiritual truth and I'm going to throw a everyday example next to it. And if I know the spiritual truth, then there's great impact of the parable. The parable means a lot. But if I don't know the spiritual truth, it's just a story about farming. That's all it is. I don't believe that you could have listened to this parable about the guy throwing the seed... And figured out what it meant. Unless in about uh, eight verses, Jesus is going to explain it. But once he explains it, it contains all kinds of truth that helps us understand how life works. How the kingdom works in the here and now. In this time period when Jesus is no longer physically with us. And that's why he's going to do it. Now... Let's start reading in verse 10. Not earlier, verse 10. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. If you think about that passage does it bother you? Does it bother you that God is going to give the secrets of the kingdom to one group and to another group he's going to refuse to explain them to them? They They do not have ears to hear. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But one little aside discussion. He's going to talk about the kingdom of heaven. Throughout the book of Matthew, we've actually talked about this, throughout the book of Matthew, he usually, not always, usually refers to it as the kingdom of heaven. You go to Mark, Luke, and John, and they usually refer to it as the kingdom of God. Why does Matthew use the phrase kingdom of heaven the majority of times and the others use kingdom of God? Well, there are those who believe that Matthew is doing this out of deference to the Jewish community. You know, to a good Jewish person merely saying the word God is almost sacrilegious. I mean, how can the holy word of name of God appear on my sinful lips? So out of deference to them, Matthew writes of the kingdom of heaven, whereas the others talk about the kingdom of God. And you know what? I kind of agree with that. I I will accept that as, as the good answer. In fact, if you, you know, poked me, that's probably the answer I would take. But there is the idea that there is a distinction between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, as used in the book of Matthew, because he does occasionally use the word, the phrase, the kingdom of God. And the distinction that people make is that the kingdom of God is the collection of those who believe and are saved. They are Christians in our modern day, right? That would be those who have had an actual conversion experience, while the kingdom of heaven consists of those who profess to be followers of God. What's the distinction? Well, we're going to talk in a moment, no, not in a moment, in a couple of days, weeks, months, whatever, <laughs> as we work through these parables about wheat and tares being in the kingdom because somebody the devil has scattered bad seed in with the good seed and the master says well don't worry about it at the end of the age at the judgment we'll make that separation we'll take care of it then the implication is that in the here and now in the earth that we live in right now in the kingdom There are some who aren't in the kingdom. Now, I don't think you would disagree with that point. We would all accept the fact that there are people who attend this church because they like the music, they like the friendly people, they like learning good things, but they're not necessarily believers. And there's going to be parables that talk about that group of people. So if there is a distinction... That is what the distinction is. So, starting over again. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, mm, not so much. The secrets of the kingdom. What are the secrets of the kingdom? The mysteries that are going to be revealed. Cody, in his sermon today, is going to talk about the mystery of the church. Okay? A mystery, we're used to what? Agatha Christie mysteries where you don't know who really done it until the last page, right? When she makes up something that you never would have figured out? Sorry. You may like mysteries. My mother reads mysteries. She always jumps to the last page <laughs> and reads that to, to remind herself whether she's read it before or not. Go figure. We think of a mystery as a a whodunit. In the scripture, a mystery is something that was in God's plan from the beginning, but it was not revealed in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, it is revealed to us. And there are lots of things. The mystery of the fact that the Gentiles are going to be part of the church was a mystery you go back to the old testament there's all kinds of things about how the good jewish community was supposed to live now it did say if somebody wanted to join that'd be okay but don't go out of your way going looking for them right it was the mystery that the gentiles would be joining with the jewish community to form The church, the mystery of the church. So there are numerous things within the scripture that are mysteries that are being revealed. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to reveal some of those to you right now. I'm going to tell you some of the mysteries. But to you, it has been given to know these secrets. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. I'm doing real good until I get to those last two verses. What is he saying? Some people have an awareness of the things of God. And to those who have an awareness of the things of God, I'm going to give more truth. And more truth and more truth. But there are those who, because of the hardness of their heart, have no interest in the things of God. They have a certain amount of the truth. The Pharisees had all the written word of God that was available at this point in history. They had it, they studied it, they probably memorized huge pieces of it. But it didn't penetrate to their heart. And Jesus is saying, those hardened hearts are not going to receive any more of my revelation. Not only are they not going to receive any more, the truth that has been given to them will be removed from them. Now, does this sound fair? Does this sound nice? Does this sound like a good way to do evangelism? No. It's not fair. But what does fair mean? We have a human idea of fairness, which is you do one thing for one person, you have to do exactly the same thing for everyone else. God doesn't have to do that at all. they They had the same opportunity, and they rejected it all. At what point is God right to say, I've given you... This chance, this chance, this chance, there is no other chance. Is God right to do that? And the answer is yes. It should scare the bejeebers out of us. Because we don't want to be that person we don't want to be that person who is so hardened of heart that the word of god cannot penetrate it to soften it back up i will give you a hint though if you're worried that you've already got to that point you're probably not at that point because one of the first indicators that you've gotten to that point is that you no longer are concerned about that point. You're not. You're just not interested. If you remember from the book of Romans, Paul talks about all the advantages that the Jewish community had received. They had the law. They had the covenants. They had the prophets. All of this was given. They had the patriarchs. God came to Abraham, gave him promises, he kept them. God came to his descendant, his descendant, his descendant, and he fulfilled all those promises. All of that were the benefits that God had given to the Jewish community. And let me add right here, just so we don't get into any trouble, the Jewish community is just like the pagan community. We hear, we reject, we hear, we respond. Those are the choices. Some are going to respond, some are not. Don't think that I'm making up something to highlight the Jewish community's unbelief when there's so much of us who do exactly the same thing. So, why is Jesus talking to the crowd in parables? So that the crowd will hear a good story and go away and think, I heard a good story, but they won't understand the kingdom of heaven. Yes? Ultimately, a number of people that started this church, and Norman, and I and Harold and Paul and some others included, came to Christ through a Jew Mm -hmm. who was at Dallas Seminary and came to speak to us. So some Jews (laughs) really accept. (laughs) His observation is that there were... Numerous people and, and the founders of this church who came to Christ because of the teaching of a Jewish professor. So, yes, yes, there are Jews who understand that Jesus was the Messiah. Don't, don't, don't think that I'm jumping on the Jewish community. At this historical point in time, the Pharisees, the Pharisees, We're not accepting Jesus as the Messiah. And Jesus the Messiah said, which by the way, as I've said in here before, he was a Jew. Don't, okay. Jesus has said, I'm going to stop teaching to them. So what we're going to see is Jesus is going to stand up in public and he's going to pronounce a parable. A guy went into his field and started casting the the seed. And then he's going to turn to the disciples and say, here's what that meant. Here's what I meant when I talked about the seed falling on the hard surface. Here's what I meant when it fell on this. Here's what I meant. And all of a sudden, the kingdom of heaven becomes clear to them because in this world, The word of God is going to be taught and some people are going to be hard rock, some people are going to have shallow, some people, the things of this world are going to choke it out and some are going to be prosperous. You shouldn't be surprised because that's what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. You will hear but never understand and you will indeed see but never perceive. We're not talking physical eyes. We're talking spiritual eyes that see spiritual truth. I told you last week, I'm reading a uh, book by uh, Yancey about disappointment with God, and he had a quote just, uh, I read it yesterday. He said, there are some truths that have to be believed to be seen. That's backwards, right? You have to see to believe, no. No. There are some truths that have to be believed before you can see the reality of them. And that's what Jesus is talking about right here. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. This is what we talk about when we talk about a hardened heart. And this, I've actually gotten in trouble teaching about this before. So I'll go ahead and step off the cliff again. I mean, right? It's not like we would learn from our past mistakes. You remember Pharaoh and Moses. Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, heck no, I'm not going to let them go. And it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. So there's a plague, locust, something, I don't know, whatever it is. And Moses comes back and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, heck no. And it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the next time, another plague. Moses comes back, let my people go. And it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And you get to the end of the discussion, you go, who's doing the hardening? Because sometimes it says Pharaoh hardened his heart and sometimes it says God hardened his heart. Who did it? And the answer is yes. (laughs) You knew that was coming, didn't you? (laughs) Romans chapter 1. Fallen sinful human beings decided to worship the created things rather than the creator. And it says God gave them over to the desires of the heart. What does that mean? I'm going to let you do what you want to do. I'm just going to let you do it. We talk about common grace. That is God's grace that is bestowed upon all of humanity, regardless of whether they are following Christ or not. All of humanity gets reigned. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Well, one aspect of that common grace is that voice inside of you that says, don't do that. I think I'll rob a bank. Don't do that. I think I'll run off with some other woman. Don't do that. That is God instilling his conscience in our lives. But you know what? What? At some point, God says, I'm going to remove that restraint. Now, is it God's fault? Because we're the ones that wanted to do it. God gave us over. So Pharaoh decides, I'm going to reject Moses. And God says, I'll let you reject Moses. And Pharaoh says, I want to reject. And God says, I'll let you reject. And pretty soon, that voice that is telling you, no, no, no. And it gets so quiet that you can no longer hear it that is what we talk about when we talk about hardness of heart we have rejected the Word of God so long that we can't respond to it for the people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear You know, the words of Jesus are going through the air and they're vibrating and they're hitting their eardrums and they're going in and their hearts just say, I don't hear anything. There's nothing to hear. And their eyes they have closed. But here's the part that bothers me. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. There comes a point in the life of a hardened soul where God says, I wouldn't heal you if you did repent. Wait, wait, wait. I didn't say that, did I? No, no, I didn't say that. What I said, (laughs) that's what we think, right? We believe that God's grace will be available regardless of what I do, regardless of how long I do it. God always has to save me. I can say no, 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 no. And when I change my mind, God will come running to me. Because, hey, it's grace, right? That is presumption on our part. We do know that God's grace can break through a hardened heart. But we also know that God is under no obligation to continue to allow his truth to be understood by those who have said no, no, no. It's interesting in the scripture, those instances where we see God's wrath immediately being displayed, and they bother us. Why don't you give the guy a second chance? He was just trying to keep the ark from falling off the cart and you steadied it and you killed him, God. Why? Because he was a priest and he wasn't supposed to have that ark on that cart to begin with. Yeah, I know I said I gave all my money to the church, Paul, but, I mean, Peter, but, you know, I kept some of it back and God zapped him. Why? Because God wants us to know that it is presumptuous to think that we can continue to say no without there being consequences. This is not good stuff, okay? This is not stuff that I want to believe. I want to believe that God is continually, in every circumstance, pursuing everyone to the ends of the earth. But at some point, God says, I've had enough, how about you? How about you? How do we know if we've reached that point? What did we say several weeks ago was the unpardonable sin? Continued rejection of the movement of the Holy Spirit in your life. If God gives you the power to repent, you haven't reached this point yet. Repent! But if you no longer are concerned, you no longer care, you no longer are interested in the things of God, don't blame it on God. God gave you the opportunities, and he gave you the chances. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Here's the promise side of this. You go back to the Old Testament, and there were lots of righteous people, Abraham. Righteous person. Noah, righteous person. Somewhere over there it says Lot was a righteous person, but I have trouble believing that one. But I'll I'll, I'll believe the scripture, so I'll go with it. There were prophets. There were a couple of kings. There were people who were righteous because they heard the word of God and they responded to it as it was revealed to them. And Jesus is saying all of those Old Testament people All of those righteous people longed to hear and to see what you are hearing and seeing. Why? Because they were looking forward to this idea of the Messiah. I'm not sure what it looks like, but I know God promised it. I know it's coming. And here they are standing with the Messiah. And Jesus says, all of those people back there, Long for this day. This is what they wanted. This is what they wanted to hear. This is where they wanted to be. And this is what I give you, the disciples. And then in the next section, he is going to explain the parable that he just told the people. Back to verse 3. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seed fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. So, this would have been a story that would have been obvious to everyone in his audience, or most everyone in his audience. It was an agrarian society. They knew about farming, okay? We have high-tech machines that plant seeds in nice, neat rows as they go. Well, what they would do is they had a, back, uh, a bucket of grain or seed, and they would start, what is that called? Scatter? huh? Broadcasting, that's the word I was looking for. Broadcasting it, and they would throw it around, okay? Everybody would have understood that. They would have also understood that over here is the path. Everybody walks on the path. The path is hard as concrete. So the seed falls on the path. And what's it doing? It just sits there. It sits there and a bird comes along and eats it up. What else is going to happen? It's not going to grow there. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, but they had no depth. I've told you before, right, I live on a street that's called Redstone. It's called Redstone because you go that deep under the ground and there's a layer of Redstone. So I can plant grass and water it and it kind of grows until the Texas sun comes out. And then I can't put enough water on it. Why? Because it's only this deep. There is shallow ground. To have true growth, you need roots. To have roots, you need depth. Shallow ground. And, and, since they, and when the sun came up, they were scorched. And since they had no roots, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. I'm throwing it, and over here is all the thorn bushes. And... And they sit there, there's soil, it grows. But you know, there's other things growing. There's competition for the nutrients in the soil. And guess what? The good stuff just gets choked out. I've got flower beds that look like that. You know, you want the good things to grow in there, but the bad things just continue to grow in there. But some of it falls in the good soil. Some of it produces a crop. Now, you and I are cheating because we know the explanation of the story. But imagine, imagine you're in this audience listening to this sermon. He's talking about stuff that we know all about and he's not explaining any of it. What does this mean? They go back and they're scratching their heads, going, I don't know. But his disciples come to Jesus. Verse 18 Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in the heart. This is what was sown along the path. I go to some place and I share the gospel. I do. I share the gospel with somebody and they look at me and go, that's the stupidest thing in the world. A hard heart. A hard heart. They do not respond to the gospel at all. And it says the devil just loves that kind of person. Okay. Not a threat, he loves it. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. They've gone to the church service, they heard the good music, they heard the good sermon, they loved it, they responded, they were excited, they responded with joy. Yet he had no root in himself but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. I thought the entire Christian life was supposed to be just like that church service that brought me such joy. Why when I walk out and people insult me for what I just did, what's that all about? When the persecution comes, notice it, It doesn't say if, it says when. Back to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, remember? When the storms of life come, those who have built their lives on the rock will stand, those who built their lives on the sand will not stand. When the tribulation comes, they go, I don't want any of that. I'm going to leave. And they walk away from their faith. They tasted, is what Hebrews tells us. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. I could preach a month of sermons on this. The cares of this world. How many of you, do not raise your hand, how many of you are bombarded with the cares of this world? And the deceitfulness of riches. What does this mean? I become a Christian. I've got some soil. I start putting down some roots. But you know what? It's Monday morning. I've got to get the kids places. Gosh, I'm exhausted. Gosh, it's, I've got to go to work. It's Monday evening, i got to do this. It's Tuesday, I've got to do that. Oh, I just, I mean, there's just so many things, and all of a sudden, it is Sunday, and I'm a mess. There have been times in my life where I believe this was a description of my life. Okay? Just so many cares of this world. And it chokes the life out of the believer. As for the one sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a 100, in another 60, and in another 30. This is the seed that falls in the soil, develops the deep roots, and produces fruit. Now, there's lots of questions. What does this really mean? Is the first person, the seed that falls on the rocky soil, is that person really a believer? No. Is the one that falls in the shallow soil really a believer? No. Is the one that falls among the thorns and the cares and worries of this world choke it out really a believer? We're going to talk about that next week. What is the point of all of this? He who has ears, let him hear. We're going to talk about the kingdom of heaven. We're going to talk about what the spiritual life means in the here and now. Not in some kingdom in the future. Not some kingdom in the past where David was ruling the the throne. In the here and now, what is it going to look like? And that's what Jesus is going to share with us as we work through these parables. If we don't understand, we need to ask somebody who does. If we have trouble, we need to seek help from other people. If we don't care, then the fear is that our heart is hardened. What should we do if we Fear that just like we do with every other sin. We confess, we repent, and we turn to God and seek his mercy. And God has promised his mercy on those who seek him. That's interesting. But not everybody's going to seek him. Because there are people who have heard it and heard it and heard it, and heard it, and heard it, and said no, and no, and no, and no. And Jesus says, no. You're a swine. I've got a pearl, and I'm not going to cast it off to you. That's horrible, by the way. I don't like that. There are things in the Scripture that I accept because they're in the Scripture, but that doesn't mean I necessarily like them at times. I take no glee in saying There are those who will not, cannot, because of their hearts, respond to the gospel. What are we supposed to do? All we're supposed to do, eh, this will be next week's lesson. All we're supposed to do is cast the seed, because the seed is the word of God. Guess what God has given us? He has given us what all those Old Testament folks long to see. We have the word of God. We need to go out and throw it. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the teachings that you have given us. I pray, Lord, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts to the truth of your word. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.